While most Americans first met today's guest via television when he was mowed down by a pork truck on the first episode of the brilliant Slings and Arrows, he is a stage veteran in his native Canada, where he has played roles as diverse as Richard III and Charlotte von Walsdorf. This summer will mark his 18th season with the legendary Stratford Festival in Ontario, but right now he is making his Broadway debut as Bejar in the revival of David Herson's comedy La Bette. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to meet Stephen Wimet. Thank you, Howard. Pleased to meet you. So the first thing that I have to ask about is, for a play that is not often done, this is your second go-round with La Bette. And I'm not referring to the incarnation in the West End before it came here. You played Valère in Canada in 93? In 1993 at the Citadel Theatre in Edmonton, Alberta, directed by Robin Phillips. So presumably that might have been the play's premiere in Canada? There was two. There were, uh, the Canadian premiere, there was two going on, one in Edmonton and one in Calgary, believe it or not, at the exact same time. Huh. And uh, th- that's, that's rather close. I don't know if you know Canadian geography, but Calgary is not that far, maybe two and a half hours, three huh. hours from Edmonton. And they were both going on at the same time. Interesting. Now, the show, as most people know, was not a success in its original Broadway production. It was a tremendous success when it went to the West End and won the Olivier as Best New Comedy. Right. What was its reception up in Canada? It, it was – well, my recollection is is that it was incredibly well received. I mean, maybe that's just me uh, wishfully thinking that, but no, I think it was. And of course, it didn't have to play for you know. We played uh, as part of a, a season, so we only did a four week run. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we could have gone further than that, I don't know. But uh, it was really, really well received, and we had a ball doing it. The two times I've seen the show, both of the Broadway incarnations, have been exceedingly different approaches to to how it's played how different is what this production is like to the production you were involved in i think there are a lot of similarities between the two i mean certainly um uh in in dealing with a play that is in rhyming verse it's such a big trap i mean i think it's a brilliant play that's why i wanted to to revisit it because it was in my imagination, just such a skillful piece of writing. And I think the similarities between both productions were the directors wanted us not to hit the poetry but to play slightly off the poetry, to make it sound like conversation. And, you know, for an example, just because something rhymes at the end, you can think to find that word and it just happens to rhyme. So it's more clever than just, you know, bum, 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 bum. He even says that in the play. It gets very monotonous that well, way. Is that what you mean about the trap of the play? Yeah, that you can fall into the rhythm. And um, um, I, mean, I think that there's more meaning to be sort of got out of it if you if you sort of think your way through and just happen to land on a rhyme as opposed to know you're heading for that rhyme. Hmm. Now, presumably, your involvement with this production comes through Matthew Warchus, who had directed you in art up That's in Canada. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you got the call to say, would you come – I don't know if he just said, do you want to do it or said, would you come in and read for it? Um, what was what was your immediate reaction on on being involved in the Beast again? Well, it was really uh, a complicated reaction because I thought I love that play. I loved working with Matthew, but can I revisit it in this way? And then and suddenly, you know, then I'm <laughs> I'm playing 
the oldest person in the play. And, and that's been happening lately. You know, I've suddenly been getting these parts that are, you know, old guys. And I thought, how did that happen? I mean, you know, Baptista and Lafeu and, you know, all, all these sort of avuncular or, or older men. And, and I've discovered that they're, they're, they're very rich and wonderful parts. And, and, uh, I'd be a fool not to sort of investigate them. So, you know, I think with any good play like Shakespeare, Yet you revisit those plays more than once often and see it from a different side, see it from a diff- different perspective. And I really did think this play was good enough that it was sort of in that category, that it was worth investigating from a different perspective, from seeing the play from somebody else's point of view. And I was not disappointed. Well, clearly the point of view is different for you because as when most people speak of the play, they talk about this monumental, essentially 30-minute monologue um, – that in this case Mark Rylance has, you were giving that in the original production. Now you and David Hyde Pierce are mostly observing that. What is it like to be on stage and every night watch that performance being given? It's it's really a test. It's really quite, um, I've got to be honest, very difficult. And not because I... Um, played the part before and am thinking of that at all. It's, it's I actually knew and know what you require from the other actors if you're playing that part. And so um, really tried to tap into that. I, I, I completely understand how much you have to give to that actor who's playing that part to just keep them buoyant enough to get through it. You know, not saying that that he couldn't do it on his own, but what fun is that? I mean, you have to sort of really, with every fiber of your being, um, assist even invisibly as much as you can. I'm very careful not to editorialize about shows, but I would say to anyone seeing it, watching you and David watching that part of the show – is quite extraordinary because you can't not be totally invested in what you're seeing happening before you and it's reacting more than it is the opportunity to to insert yourselves into the scene. It's remarkable. Well, I think that comes from the director, Matthew Warchus, and also Mark and David both, and I believed that that had to be a dialogue. It had to be a, a three-hander. And we had to write lines for ourselves in our heads. Really? Because I think the power of thought is an amazing thing. If a thought is loud enough, people actually hear it, you know? I mean, did you literally write lines? Well, we have thoughts. We, I mean, I, I didn't write rhyming couplets uh, in my <laughs> head, but, but I certainly have um, a dialogue going on in my, in my brain hmm. while that's happening in, in, in terms of questions I want to ask, uh, um, what I actually think about what he's saying and what I have to sort of pretend I feel about what he's saying. You know, there's a whole script. Hmm. Interesting. And that changes nightly. You know, because uh, Mark, he likes to change it up. So we, we have to be on on our toes. Well, there was an article about how he's got you playing volleyball in the theater and all and of these games. And we are devoted to it. <laughs> we started playing in the stalls at the Comedy Theater in London um, before um, every show. And we have not missed a game. 
and we're getting really, really good at it. Well, you're getting good at volleyball, but does it truly affect then how you interact on stage? I think it does. Hmm. I really do because what what the game sort of asks you to do is 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 be a team player, set somebody else up, um, uh, be very very aware of the other people, and not be a hero all the time, and not try and sort of you know win the game single handedly. It sounds kind of corny, but those sports those sports analogies actually work more and more and I'm finding directors all over the world I worked with a director called Graham McLaren from um, in Glasgow and he, he was very big on this um, playing sports before the rehearsals but it's sports it's not theater games I mean we all know no. of improvisational games and all of that but but it's actually the act of being teams together yeah and like going out like a, like a like a hockey team or a or a, a football team go out as one unit with one goal in mind and that's to play the game. Hmm. Uh, that that kind of unified thinking for the acting troupe is not a bad thing to think about. Hmm. Yet you have to divide yourselves up, don't you? And, and to play volleyball, you're, you're, two, you're, you're opposing teams. We are for, opposing for a while. teams. You're not inviting in the, you know, the cast from across the street. Well, we play. did. We even in London had the ushers. We played with the ushers <laughs> in London. And uh, we had a, um, uh, the cast of Jerusalem that Mark was in before this uh, came and challenged us to a game. And oh. we kicked their butts. <laughs> Since you brought up London, how was the response to the show in London and what is the response like? I'm not speaking of critically. I'm speaking of audience. How did the audience respond in London versus how the audience responds here? Is there a difference? Um, I think so. Only in that they laugh at different things. You know, um, here they laugh at the word prosthesis. There, they laughed at the word mimesis. It, it, you know, it, it's just – it's that kind of small. But, I, you know, and maybe not as um, boisterous. I mean, uh, it, it was um, – I mean, I think they really enjoyed it and there was a lot of laughter in London. But we get some audiences here that just go crazy. And, you know, that, that, that unafraid, unabashed kind of response to a play is – is great, and, and I, I don't think I've experienced it anywhere else uh, hmm. than than here. I've often heard it said that British audiences are less demonstrative than American audiences. So when you come over, almost immediately there was obviously a hiatus, a short hiatus, but there wasn't a long gap. Did the show have to adjust? For the different audience, did you have to re-rehearse to get the sense of what it would be or simply because Matthew had new ideas and had a chance to get back in the room with you? He certainly did. And, and in fact, uh, some people that have seen it in London and here say it's a completely different show here. Like we did um, uh, some crazy things like uh, the parable is completely on the opposite side of the stage than it was at in London. Also, the stage, the comedy theater – is half the size of the music box. Huh. So it's a bigger set, like pack a lunch when you go to make a cross because it takes you know twice as long to get there. And uh, so and he changed a lot of things. 
hmm. and in, in just in a few days. And but it, it, in the spirit of the way we rehearsed the play, which was very improvisational, we didn't have any blocking for the longest time. Hmm. Sort of through the previews in London, a kind of blocking settled in, but it was it was it was pretty much going out uh, and 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 going with. What was ever happened? What was happening at the moment? But what you say about the space is interesting because everybody says the key to comedy is timing. The timing has to have changed enormously if, if indeed you've got more space to cover for things that might have been funny. And I think that was something that was in the front of all of our heads: is how do we how do we make this adjustment? And it was sort of troubling for about three days. I know people were anxious and talking about it, and then it went away. We sort of made the leap and. Uh, adjusted to the new space and now I think we can't even remember the other one. Hmm. And would you ever want to play Valair again? Well, it's oddly enough, someone, somebody, a theater director who runs a theater in Canada saw the show last week and said to me right after, would you want to play this part again? And I don't know. I, 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 I really don't. I, I'll think about it, but I, I, I'm not sure. Hmm. Interesting. Well, let's find out more about you because, as I said, um, you've performed really a few times in the U.S., but you are you are a Canadian stalwart. So, so how did you uh, come to theater up in Canada? Was it something that was always part of your life, or did, is it something you found at a certain age? It's exactly what happened. I found it at a certain age. I was, uh, I think, had it. I was with a the wrong group of kids in high school and, uh, you know, sort of headed down a really wrong path. And uh, a very astute English teacher, um, I don't know, maybe because of class or something I'd done in class, sort of noticed and encouraged me to come and audition for a play. And I thought, no, no way. And it was, I remember it was... uh, Tea House of the August Moon, the the, the part that Marlon Brando played. <laughs> okay. And I, for some reason, went and auditioned for it and got it and did it. And then I think that was it. I just sort of got hooked. And this was sort of later in high school. It wasn't early high school. And I'd always planned on being a veterinarian. That's what I thought I was going to do. I, I, I sort of checked it all out, knew what school I was going to I'm go to. I'm a little to. confused about you were hanging with the wrong crowd of kids, but you were going to be a veterinarian. <laughs> you weren't a street tough, I no, gather. No, not at all. Not at all. No, I mean, you know, kind of pseudo-bad kids, not, not, mm-hmm. not real, real bad. But then I, I, I suddenly surprised everybody and decided I was going to go off to theater school. And um, everybody's jaw dropped and thought that's – peculiar but off I went I went to the University of Windsor and and was that immediately a conservatory where you had to audition to get a place in the class that's right yeah so you did your tea monologues from tea house of the august moon <laughs> I didn't I didn't I did <laughs> I think I did Edmund from King Lear and Father Jack from Jack the Submission by Ionesco hmm. with odd choices but I anyway well that may have gotten their attention maybe maybe so, so what was the experience of then starting to train, and and what did school give you? Well, it was it was essential that I had tra- I went and trained because that was a it was a four year program, and I really I fought. Uh, I was incredibly shy as a you know a lot of actors I think are or say they are, but I really really was, and I remember the director of the school sending me off to the library to listen to John Gilgood records because he said, you have a very quiet voice, you have a very soft voice, and uh, you need to learn how to use that. And, and you know, um, 
I think people that know me now won't believe that because I'm pretty loud. <laughs> but, you know, it was fighting that incredible shyness and, and having a, a place to explore what, 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 what acting was and what it meant to me I think was essential. Do you know why Gielgud? There were certainly other actors recorded. If you think of that era, Olivier, Ralph Richardson, there were there were recordings of all of these actors. I know. I don't know why he picked that. I mean, um, I did it. I faithfully went and listened to all mm-hmm. those albums, and uh, um, whether it helped me or not, I don't know. Huh. So when you got out of school, how quickly was there opportunity for you? Well, all my classmates had auditioned for William Hutt's Young Company at the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario. And uh, most of them got in. And I was put on the waiting list. Hmm. I got a, a note saying, you're really great, but you know, not this time. And I don't know why I did this, but I, on a sort of scrap piece of paper, just dashed off a letter. I remember in red ink to William Hutt, sort of how classless is that? And saying, I'm going to be in London. I have to relocate after school. So if you need me for anything, please call. And I got a job as a local jobber in Twelfth Night playing Antonio, hmm. which I think I got paid $100 a week. And I was over the moon. And from that experience, I was then brought into the company. And within two years was playing Alan Strang opposite William Hutt in their production of Equus. Now, let's stop for a minute because certainly for our American audiences, if they've not been up to Canada for theater, they don't know who William Hutt is. Could you contextualize him as a figure in the Canadian theater? Well, I think everybody would agree that he's our – was our greatest uh, um, Canadian actor in terms uh, – certainly in terms of the classical theater. He changed – He stayed in Canada. There are certainly great actors who He stayed in Canada and and, and, and did the bulk of his career there, although he did have some, you know, um, shows on Broadway in the early years. But he stayed in Canada and spoke with a Canadian voice and didn't speak Shakespeare with an English accent and changed a lot of, 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 of the way we do Shakespeare in Canada. So the young company, when you speak of that, he was already established and this was a company of young people that he was directing? Yes. He, not only was he an actor at the Stratford Festival, but he also was the artistic director for a period of time at the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario. And uh-huh. he, he started a young company. Oh, I see. So within, within the yeah. Grand We company. would do our own shows down in the studio and then uh, be part of the uh, main stage shows upstairs. So how long did you work in the Young Company? That was three, three years. But, because, mm-hmm. but, but then from the Young Company, I did a show with Peter Moss who was also a director at Stratford and they brought me to Stratford. That's how I actually got to Stratford in, in, in the first place. It was uh, 1979 mm-hmm. and I did the last two seasons of uh, Robin Phillips' tenure there. With Stratford, which we're going to talk a lot about shortly, the season – is really from when to when, typically? Well, it depends. If you're in a musical, you could start as early as February. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I've even started as early as mid-January. And then that goes till the end of October or S- sometimes the middle of November. Because as I look at a rundown of a lot of other work you've done, is that all fit in in that, say, October or November to February period? 
or do you do your other work and sometimes say, I'm not going to do the season at Stratford? I do that. I, I, I'm a big believer in the open door policy. I think it's good for me. I think it's good for the, that theater that you go off and do other things. You work with other people. You learn new things and you bring those back to the company. I think it would be very difficult to just stay in Stratford you could do it and people have done and have a career there. It's not something that interests me because I want to – I'm desperate to work with new people and learn new things. And uh, um, like, I th- like I said, it's like a blood transfusion mm-hmm. for, for, for everybody. You know, Like, oh, here's something I picked up. Is this valuable to, our, to the company? And uh, so I've made a point to sort of make sure that I every so often – um, go off and, 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 and do other things. Let me ask about some of the other things and then we'll talk about Stratford. Um, one credit, um, in 1985, you did a production of Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, two-character play. Um, clearly, Stratford experience, presumably to some degree, the work with, with William Hutt, um, was more in the classical vein. So how much opportunity had you had to do relatively new work? Well, the first two years uh, and three because then I went – 79, 80, Stratford, 81, Shaw. Then I went out to Vancouver, quit acting for a year and worked in a bakery, believe it or not. Then came back to Canada and did another season at Stratford, 83. Then moved to Toronto where I only did basically new Canadian plays and new American plays um, for 10 years hmm. from 83 to 93. Hmm. And so I really sort of gave myself time to do workshops and new plays and did a lot of plays at the Tarragon Theater. And this production of Danny and the Deep Blue Sea was um, sort of a real um, fringe show. It was it was mounted for probably $25,000 and uh, directed by a director who was brilliant, I thought, but had nev- never directed a play before. And uh, we were in a church um, – and, and slated to run for like two or three weeks and ended up running for like nine. It just was one of those magical experiences and uh, it captured everybody's imagination. And, and your first big award, you won a Dora Award. A Dora Maver Award, award yeah. So, so even in a church basement, uh, the, the attention came. We were talking um, before we started that in 88 – you were in New Haven doing a production of The Alchemist at Yale Rep. How did that come about? Well, John Hirsch, who directed that production, had directed me in Three Men and a Horse at the Royal Alex in Toronto. And I think that was – there was rumors that that was maybe um, – they were trying to get that into New York and it, it, it didn't happen. Hmm. But we had a, 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 a riot doing it and John Hirsch um, was sort of a real – a big mentor for me. And I, I remember when he asked me to do Three Men and a Horse, he, he called me and said, what do you do on Saturday mornings? And I said, well, if I'm honest, I watch Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> and he said, so do I. <laughs> Come over and we'll watch it. I've got something to talk to you about. So I went over to his place. We watched Pee Wee's Playhouse. And then he asked me to do Three Men and a Horse. And oddly enough, I just went and saw the Pee Wee Herman show. The other day. <laughs> I was going to say, is this, this is some cosmic connection that you are making your Broadway debut at the same time <laughs> Paul Rubens is making his. Exactly. Um, but the idea of you said that the Three Man and Horse might have come to New York. You you got to New Haven. 
was there a lure for you? Did you think about maybe I should come to the States to pursue a career? I thought about it a lot and why I never did it, I don't know. Like when those opportunities arose and it was a chance to go down and work, I I, I did it. But I don't know. I I think it's a combination of – I mean if I were honest with myself, I I think all I ever really wanted to be was – (laughs) a working actor. I just wanted to work. I know as soon as I got out of school, a lot of my friends moved to big centers and and started waiting tables and auditioning. And I just went wherever I could get stage work. Medicine had Alberta. I went anywhere I could be on stage. And, And... and I don't know if I'd gone to a big center, if I'd, say, just moved to Toronto or New York or Chicago or wherever uh, right after theater school. I don't know whether I'm the kind of actor that would have survived it. Hmm. I don't, I'm not sure. How do you mean um, the kind of actor? Uh, I don't know whether I would have sort of – whether I would have given up or whether I could – if I had that thing inside me that, that, would, that would just hang on uh, th- through auditions and auditioning and auditioning and not getting any work. Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean maybe I would have been OK. But, uh, but I, I often think about it and I think maybe that's um, a bit of a fear, you know, that you think mm, I don't want to put myself up against that, that big – that big one. But was that part of your experience? You spoke about doing all of these new plays in Toronto for a period of time after you'd had some Stratford experiences and spent a little time baking. Um, you know, which is an interesting look. Daniel Day Lewis makes shoes. It's not the most absurd thing in the I world. I made cookies with, uh, the, 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 uh, with Mike Stotts, who now is the general manager of Hartford Stage. We, we worked at that bakery together and made cookies. <laughs> So, as a friend of Mike Stotts, I, I will be making a phone call immediately following this taping <laughs> to discuss <true>. this. Um, <laughs> so, but but I didn't want to get us back onto the baking too much. Um, it does seem that the idea of being within a company and knowing where your next job is coming from was appealing to you, and it, that that since the company system is much more alive in Canada than it is here in the states. You say it just seemed like a good match. I think it was a good match for me. So what's interesting, I, I said in the introduction that you'll be doing your 18th season at Stratford. That's in, it, does that include the interruptions or is that how many you've done sort of continuously? No, that, that's, that's the totality? That's totality, not the consecutive. So when, you know, when did you really settle back to Stratford because you said there were those 10 years. So it looks like around 93, 94 is when you really started doing Stratford very, pretty regularly. That's right. I, I, I came back in 93 and uh, stayed till 98. So I stayed for five years and then I went away and did some other things and then came back. I was back and forth after that. One of the things that you'd obviously have perspective on having first been there in 1980. There have been changes in artistic leadership throughout that time. Has the festival, when the artistic leadership changed, has it felt different when you've been there under each leader? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure it has. And, I mean, it's it's such an extraordinary organization. It's big now, and it was big then. I remember sitting in the audience as a high school student 
and seeing a Midsummer Night's Dream. And, and having this is the classic those. thing. You were bussed in from where where you were living. In. Totally. And it was a really, you know, horrible audience and, you know, really misbehaved. And they were throwing things in the blackouts. And it was all that, you know. But I remember the lights just going down before the show started. And I could not breathe. It was, and I had, to, you know, just the most amazing experience. In fact, it's helped me get through a lot of student matinees. That experience, because I know that out there somewhere, there's me hmm. having amazing, having an amazing experience. So, you know, it's helped get through some of those student matinees. But with those, I think with any theater that size, you're always it's it, it you're always taking the chance that you're going to find something amazing. You know, like, like that, that, that there's going to be one show that's going to just pop and really be um, what we want theater to be. And, and, and that's always the case. It's been my experience. You know, some of the shows are really good and don't, don't, don't really do that. But, but there's always that one and, and that's what you're hoping for, to see it or to be hopefully in it. Hmm. Well, you've been in so many, and I mean, I can run down this list, but but Hamlet, Merry Wives of Windsor, Amadeus, Country Wife, Waiting for Godot, uh, Taming of the Shrew. You played Richard III, as I said at the beginning. I mean, it's just it's all of the great plays. Um, how do you get cast within the system? Because typically, you're doing. Not a single show. They'll at least cast you in two in a season. At least two, if not three. They want you to do three. So is that is that something that's simply offered to you, saying, would you play these, or is it a conversation with the artistic director? I think it's sometimes both. You know, like uh, the artistic director may say, what, what do you feel you'd like to do now, and then find out if they can accommodate that. Or often I found that they'll come up with things that I didn't think of. Like they'll say, we thought of this part, and you think, I never would have picked that, but then I ended up having the best time with it. So sometimes what we think we should play is not always what we should play, in in a sense. Well, it begs the question, what did you play that you didn't think you should play? Um, or wouldn't have thought of playing? Richard III. Hmm. That was sort of presented to me, and I thought, I never would have picked that for myself. And I ended up having a, a, a fantastic time. I'm just trying to think off... What would be another one? Um, Hamlet. Well, I was going to say, had you <laughs> dreamed of being – I mean, were you like every young actor who always dreamed you'd get to play Hamlet? Back in the early 80s when uh, the new uh, – Robin Phillips was leaving the Stratford Festival and this new group of four was going to run the Stratford Festival. And then they were all fired by the board. There was a horrible kind of big uh, tempest in a teapot really but um, – I was slated to play Hamlet in 81. I would have been 26 or something and um, that all fell apart. Huh. I'd seen the costume designs, I, everything. You know, it, was a, it was a going uh, production. So – and Richard Minette, who was part of the company at that time, when he became the artistic director, brought me back into the company and let me play Hamlet. More than a decade later. Yep. As a kind of a here you go. You know, that you, that didn't happen. I'm going to give that – I'm going to make sure that, you know, it was sort of a makeup present mm. and it was uh, it was fantastic. Mm. Did he direct you? He did. And was there a particular approach that you took to Hamlet or a concept to the production? Oh, boy. 
I know it back. modern dress, mm-hmm. very simple, very scaled back, and quite cut. I remember that the text was quite cut. I remember having conversations with him and begging him to put put stuff back, and and uh, I was not successful. That's interesting because I always think of the Stratford Festival as being sort of the purists about the classics, and so so Shakespeare, certainly Hamlet's not a short play. That sort of thing did happen. It did. And, yeah. and, and he found it on uh, uh, um, some quarto, a weird place for to be or not to be, um, sort of in the middle of a scene with Polonius mm-hmm. and uh, did that. We did that. We, we, we put to be or not to be in this very odd place and it was like in mid-conversation, the lights changed to be or not to be happened and then it went back to the conversation and it was – I guess the idea was to be that that whole speech happened in like a – millisecond in his head and it was very interesting. I don't know whether it worked or not but it was really, really fun to well, play. It sounds fascinating. It certainly gives you a way I mean, of approaching a role that so many have played and certainly you've seen other Hamlets to, to change up the text but that you point out it was something he'd found in one of the versions so it wasn't that he invented it. No, he didn't. It, it, it had historical backing as, as potentially being legit. It may have been an early draft that got cut, but <laughs> absolutely. But but there you go. Um, what was Amadeus like at the festival? Oh, what a! It was so much fun. It was. Uh, I'd done a, a production of Twelfth Night with Brian Bedford as Feste, and I was Egechik, and uh, we had such a good time doing that that I think he sort of wanted to do a play together. And uh, they came up with Amadeus, and we had a ball. So he was Salieri. Yes. You were Mozart. That's hmm. right. And, and a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful world designed by Desmond Healy that was just fantastic. It was re- really – it was a fine – I think a fine production. But surely the play had the the, the original – concept that had come from London to New York. At some point, there had been the commercial run of Amadeus. It wasn't that it was new no, up it in was, Canada. No, it was, you're, you're about it was later. 14 years later. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, it, it, he'd already won, you know, uh, Shafford already won the, the Oscar and the, mm-hmm. every, all the awards that he won yeah. and, 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 and came and did rewrites for us, which I was absolutely shocked by that he was still willing to work on that play I remember having a conversation in rehearsal with him and at near the end of the play when Salieri is um, sort of really uh, in his big attack on, on Mozart just before he dies and, and they, that scene was rewritten and I had dialogue that I thought I was having trouble with and I remember saying to him one day, I don't think I'd say this to a man who would already won. An Oscar for the screenplay. Thank you very much. And he said, well, what do you think you'd say? And I'd say, well, I don't think I'd say anything. I think I'd be absolutely nonplussed and horrified. Hmm. So do that. It's interesting because, of course, when Amadeus came back to Broadway with Peter Hall directing once again, the script had changed. And and there it was even and even the direction the the way Peter Hall approached it had changed. So it's interesting that that Schaffer all along has been open to to, 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 to tweaking. Yeah, to tweaking and getting it right. Huh. Now you were directed by Brian Bedford in Waiting for Godot. Godot is a blank slate for 
many people to project onto it what they will. What was what was it like playing one of those two tramps? Well, as you'd expect, um, thrilling and incredibly terrifying all at the same time. I mean, I think there were moments in rehearsal, just because of the nature of the play, we'd have conversations where I'd have to leave the room. I'd have to just get out of the room for a minute because I thought I'm... <laughs> I'm going to have an existential breakdown or something. You know, I'm just because you were discussing the philosophy of, of it? the play, and it's kind of scary territory. Hmm. And and uh, you know, it, it, sort of creeping up to it and looking at it every once in a while is okay. But 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 just staying there too long, I think. Um, so it, it made me laugh, and it scared me down to my very being. Hmm. Interesting. Now in '98. You came with the Stratford Company uh, to City Center here in New York. That's right. And that was your, your New York debut? Yeah, I guess that would be considered off-Broadway, wouldn't it? Well, it, City Center is sort of its own place because yeah. it's a huge theater. It's actually larger than most of the Broadway houses – than all of the Broadway houses. Right. Yet it's not um, a Tony contender house. So it's, it's just a different venue. But they were doing two shows in rep. You were only in the Much Ado. That's right. But but what, that was your first experience performing here in New York. That's right. What was that like? We talked earlier about you know that you didn't make the leap to come to come work in New York. It was a short run. It was only a couple of weeks. Four uh, weeks. Oh, I okay, think, yeah. four weeks. But what was it like being here in New York for a sustained period of time working? Well, thrilling, like just completely fantastic. I mean, we, we, here we were in New York with a job and a paycheck and, and, and because I wasn't in the other show, we had chances to go when The Miser was on. We saw so much theater. So it was just like – it was like a paid vacation really. It was fantastic. As somebody who's – Aesthetic and training and experience had been entirely in Canada. Was there a difference to the kind of acting you saw here? Really good question. Um, I don't know. I think if I had to say one thing, it would be confidence, the deep, deep level of confidence. I mean – Good theater is good theater anywhere. I mean you're going to see it no matter where you go in the world. If something's you know, good, it's good. But I, you know, I, I'm not sort of trying to say that maybe Canadians don't have uh, or still have that inferiority complex. I, I think that's going. I think that's on its way out. But I know a friend of mine who's coming down to do a show – um, just started rehearsals and it's her Broadway debut and she asked a friend of ours, Brent Carver, any advice about being in New York and he said, um, don't let it make you smaller. <laughs> let it make you embrace it and let it make you as big as it is. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought about that and I thought that's, a really, that's really good. It can be quite, quite daunting you know, to sort of think about Broadway and, and what that means and, and to embrace the size of it. Is a, is a really good way of thinking of it. Well, certainly for, for Brent, you know, he came in in Spider-Woman and then was back for Parade. So in his case, not only Broadway but Broadway musicals, which mm-hmm. is a whole other level. Um, as we're talking about the acting, you have at times directed. You directed fairly early on. Well, early in the 90s, you did a show at the Factory Theatre in Toronto – uh, in 2004, you directed Timon of Athens at uh, at Stratford. 
obviously you have the ability to direct because people have asked you to do it several times. It's not that you tried it once and passed on it. Do you enjoy directing? I, re- I really, really do. Um, it's got to be the right play and the right um, sort of situation, but I don't want to. I now know that I don't want to just go into a, a career of directing. I think it's something that when it comes along and it fits, perfect. But I, it's not something I really, really, you know, want to leave acting for. Mm-hmm. If, if it can fit in, then perfect. So when there is a show, I mean, certainly Time of Athens didn't necessarily just come along. The play is an old play. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the same is going to be true. You did Ghosts. You did A Much Ado About Nothing. Is it that whoever's been leading the festival says, it's time for you to do this again? Or is it that you go and say, I really would like to work on this? I haven't done that. The, 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 with the Time of Athens, um, uh, Richard approached me. He had picked the play and, 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 and the actor that he wanted to play Time and Peter Donaldson. And he came to me and said, are you interested in doing this? And I read it and was very, very interested. Even though all the research that I did was trying to persuade me not to do it. I read one sort of assessment of the play that said, any director who decides to stage Time of Athens is unwisely brave, if not perverse. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, oh, well, this does not bode well. But it turned out to be exactly the opposite of that. Hmm. Now, when you did the Much Ado About Nothing, that was a very busy year for you because you were – you directed that. In the same season, you did I Am My Own Wife. And you were shooting the third and final season of Slings and Arrows. Yeah, I actually had to pull out of that um, of Much Ado About Nothing. Really? Uh, due to exactly what you're so saying. So had you started or you just – We got to, uh, I don't know, um, through about three or four weeks of rehearsal and I, I, had, to, I had to withdraw. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. It was uh, a, a very um, – well, a very scary period for me but a, a, a really learning period because I was just at the – I was doing too much. I wanted to do it all was playing Charlotte von Molsdorf in Ottawa and Toronto and shooting um, the last and Arrows, uh, yeah. the second season of Sings and Arrows or the last season of Sings and Arrows. Anyway, it just it, it caught up with me. Mm. And I uh, then I took a year off actually hmm. and uh, put some more gas in the car. Let's talk for a minute about I Am My Own Wife. Certainly Jefferson Mays who created the role here in the U.S., played it around the U.S., played it in a number of other countries. Had he done it up in Canada? No. Or you were the, Cana- you were the, the first Charlotta in Canada? I'm not sure if I, if we, if I was or not. Um, it might have been done out west. Uh, mm-hmm. I, 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 I can't really be sure about that. But, but certainly for Eastern Canada, it was the first time they'd uh, uh, any company done a production of it. How did you find your way into that character? Because, of course, Jefferson had... Doug Wright and the tapes and all of that access. And I think I read that you didn't – Doug wasn't particularly involved in the production. He had sent a nice note of goodwill. But right. but you were doing it on your own. Well, I think that's the test of a play, you know, that if a, if a play is good enough um, and other people can take it and, and do what they want with it and it will still – be as good as it was the first time. I did have the curious feeling of, of always, as an actor, I felt like I was always in someone else's bedroom, you know, in, with someone else's things. And 
you know, in terms of the the the, the close um, relationship that 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 actor had had with that script and the development of it, and you know, it, it must have been so incredibly personal. How could it not have been to have worked on it that long? Mm-hmm. So I always felt a bit kind of. But that went away and, and, and I was lucky enough to have uh, Robin Phillips directing it and really wanted to sort of make it our own and uh, did it our way. And, uh, and, and you know, I don't know whether we were successful or not, but, but it certainly was um, a way of, of honoring uh, that important character. Hmm. Interesting. Now, normally I don't spend time talking about television on <laughs> this uh, program, but – Slings and Arrows was, for me, when the first episode aired for the first time in the United States, 10 minutes in, mind-blowing because suddenly there was someone on television talking about approaching corporate sponsors and given my background, I'd never seen my life portrayed on stage. (laughs) Um, It was a remarkable series. By the time it premiered here, it had already been seen um, in Canada. How did you come to that project? You know, at the time, none of us knew Bob Martin here. Don McKellar certainly had done a lot of film work that had made it here. But these weren't really familiar names. Only we knew Paul Gross from Due South at, at most. Right. So, so tell me about coming to Slings and Arrows. Well, there was this script floating around that everyone was reading. And at that time, it was called, I don't know, working title was Shakespeareville. I mean, not... Not as attractive. But everybody was reading it and it was causing much stir around the Stratford Festival, of course, because the Stratford Festival thought it was about them and in many ways maybe it is. But uh, there was a lot of controversy going on. So when the – people had to go in and audition and I went in. I was called in to read for the part of Oliver Wells and um, was offered the role and – I remember Richard Manette at the time who was not pleased about the series, who thought it was vile. And mm. I think he'd read some earlier drafts where it was a bit more satirical. They'd sort of not softened it but changed a few things. And, and, and he said, don't – why are you doing that? Why are you going to be a part of that? And I said, well, it's really, really good. But I couldn't, I couldn't change his mind. He, he, he didn't want anything to do with it. And uh, – and luckily enough, Paul, Martha, you know, Don McKellar, uh, Mark McKinney, all, all, all people that I'd known, we had such a good time doing it. Well, it seems when you look at the cast list and then you look at who's, who are Stratford Festival regulars, it seemed like you all just picked up in the off season and went and shot a TV series together. Yeah, it was, and it was such a dream job. I really, it really was. It was so much fun to go to work. Because the writing was so good, everybody was having such a good time and loved. We worked really hard, but it was such a um, a satisfying uh, thing to get to get to do. Hmm. The writing of it was collaborative because they typically were crediting at least three writers. On, That's right. on most of the episodes. D- once everybody was cast, did you all have input in any way to your characters, or was it really written and you you did what was done? It was for the most part like that. Often in my scenes with Paul, um, we would uh, improvise a little bit and, 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 and I would say probably 75 percent of the time those things went through. You know, we'd either live at the end of a scene or, or in the middle or you know, just tweak it a little bit and, 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 and 
so we were allowed to do that. We had a bit of freedom. We weren't rewriting at all, at all, by any means. Well, it's interesting that you say your your scenes with Paul because, with with very little exception, certainly the first episode aside, all your scenes were with Paul. You may have been present for other scenes, but you were only acting. You had one scene partner for an 18 episodes of a TV series. I know, and everybody else had to pretend I wasn't there. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) But what was the reaction? I read one article that that said it was actually more acclaimed here in the U.S. than it was in Canada. Is that possibly true? I think that's totally true. Really? I mean, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are. I mean, I don't know what the you know. because it still seems to be a bit of a cult here. I, I feel like it is. you know a promoter of of this show, and I, I I just know that when I come to the United States, the two shows that I've done at at Chicago Shakes, more people come and talk about that about slings and arrows than anybody does in Canada. It's sort of like it happened, and but I think that whatever the the viewership on Sundance, that must have done a lot for hmm. the show because people from all over the states, I mean, talk about it. Fascinating because, as I say, it, it seems like here it's still kind of this this underground thing that the theater folk know about and you don't run into that many people on the street who who would know it. So it's interesting that you say you've had that reaction in Chicago. The conclusion of Slings and Arrows – in a way, had almost a full circle for you in that William Hutt, who gave you your first jobs, was in the third season and passed away on screen and playing Lear, which he was supposed to do that summer at Stratford. What was it like to be with him in what became certainly his final recorded appearance and may well have been, as far as I know, his final acting appearance. I think it was his final acting appearance, I think. Uh, Well, it meant so much to me just as a young actor to be able to have – and because he was the other character that could see me. He was the only other character that could see Oliver. And so we had – yeah, for all the reasons that you said. I mean, he gave me my first job and was such a, a, an incredible uh, influence in my 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 career and 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 a, and a friend and a you know um, a teacher and, and and to get to do that with him. Of course, nobody knew at the time that he was really about to pass. I know after we finished um, uh, slings and. Well, it was certainly after I'd had my 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 year off. I went. I was in Chicago, and I was in uh, Troilus and Cressida playing Pandarus, and I and it just entered my head that I m- remember Bill had played a kind of a famous Pandarus in a production of Troilus and Cressida, and, and 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 even though Bill and I were close, he was not somebody I would just pick the phone up and call, but I did. It, it was uncharacteristic, but I thought I'm just going to call him, and I phoned him, and he told me that he had this rare form of leukemia, and it was like I don't know. I don't know if I believe in this, those kinds of things, those kinds of messages that get sent to you about phoning people at a certain time. But I, it was a chance for us to talk about his illness and about 
Pandarus. He gave me some great advice about how to play it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was our goodbye uh, on the phone because he, by the time I got back, he had, he had passed. Mm. It's extraordinary. Let us, move, let us move back to happier things. There's a show that you were in at the Stratford Festival in 2009, a production of The Importance of Being Earnest, that is about to uh, begin performances here on Broadway. Of course, you were already involved in La Bette, so you didn't have the opportunity. What's it like to have, have at the moment that you get your first Broadway show, have yet another broad show of yours come to Broadway? And and to see it happening without you, I can't wait to see it. I get to see the well, show. Of course, you never got to watch it. No, before. so I get to go and see it, and and uh, I I'm just I'm stoked about that. I can't wait to have a look. It's going to be so great. <laughs> and that, that 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 you know, um, Brian and Sarah and some of the people that I know that are in the show are, are in New York now, so I get to hang with them too. <laughs> so when Labette wraps up, you already know what your next job is. <laughs> You're going to be back at Stratford this summer. And you mentioned earlier on that you've played Sir Andrew in Twelfth Night before, but you're doing it again this summer. I'm doing it again. I'm, I think – well, I mean those parts, you can revisit them so many times and always find something new. And uh, it was an opportunity this coming summer to work with Brian Dennehy who's playing Sir Toby Belch. And uh, in two shows, I'm doing with him uh, The Homecoming by Harold And Pinter. I noticed you're the only actor who's doing both shows with Brian. Yeah. So. He wanted to – I think he, uh, we – when he was there the last time, not – it was a couple of seasons ago. He played the King of France in All's Well That Ends Well and I was Lefeu and we had a great time. And I, I think um, – I think he wanted to do another play with me. Hmm. I, I mean, I hope they're not. He forced. wanted to do two more plays. I, with I hope they're not forcing him on me, or mm. me on him. I mean, <laughs> but in rep to play Sir Andrew and to play Sam in the Homecoming by Pinter, that's going to be switching gears back and forth. But that's rapidly. the beauty of rep. Mm. Only in rep can you do that. Like, and 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 it's it's actually food for an actor. It's such it's such a great. You'd think it would be really difficult to put different hats on like that, but it's actually a savior. It's it's, it's a real, you know, to play something so far from each other. It's what get, it's what gets you through those long seasons, and such a treat for the audiences too to see actors really doing flip sides of themselves. It's 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 the beauty of rap. Hmm. And you're going to be directed in the Twelfth Night by Des Enough. Currently, the artistic director. Have you done other shows for Des yet at Stratford? Uh, last summer, not this past summer, the summer before, I was in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum that Des directed. And since I asked early on, and you said you know, the festival changes with each artistic director, what is Des brought to Stratford, and what is the the spirit now um, compared to? Not not to compare, but just in relation to things before. I think he's brought an an incredible energy and an incredible um, intelligence about letting find letting people find and letting people do what they do best. You know, in, you know, um, matching um, young directors like Jennifer Tarver with. Brian Dennehy, the homecoming. She's yeah. doing the homecoming, but she also did Craps Last Tape with Brian 
when he was there last and things like that, finding plays and actors and directors and he's a bit of a chemist. Hmm. You know, he's, he's, he's whipping up some potions down there and, and it's, it's, it's exciting. He's brought a, a, a high level of energy to the festival and it needs somebody of his energy to make it go. It's, it, it, I mean, it's a perfect match, really. Hmm. Since you mentioned musicals, as I looked through your work, <laughs> certainly Funny Thing Happened to the Way of the Forum popped out. And about 16 years ago, you played Fagin in Oliver. Are musicals something you've looked for in your career or have they just come your way and you do them when it happens? Exactly that. I mean, it's not something I would sort of go after, but I'm not afraid to take on a challenge. And I mean, when I got offered uh, Fagin and Oliver, I, I'd never really done a musical before. Hmm. And uh, I, I either wisely or unwisely said yes, because I thought, what a challenge. I mean, who knows? Um, let's see. And clearly the person that offered, it was Robin Phillips again, who offered me the part, had a had a more confidence in me than I had in myself. And I had a ball doing it. Being on stage with 25 children and a dog, you think <laughs> is going to be a nightmare. And it was so much fun. Hmm. I loved it. So the exact opposite of, of was it W.C. Fields, never work with children or dogs? I know. And that's what I thought was but totally. And the, just the genius of those children and and, you know, we're all old, jaded actors and at the end of the show packing up our stuff and can't wait to get to the airport and get out of there. And then there's like 13 six-year-old, seven-year-old kids bawling their eyes out in the hall because the show's closing. It's just like too much. It's just too much. Hmm. Well, I want to return to a question I've already asked. I don't believe I pointed out that when you did – Labette, that was also your West End debut. So in the space of a couple of months, you made your debut in London's West End. You made your Broadway debut and certainly your longest run here in New York compared to the run at City Center a number of years ago. Um, is there any desire to explore more opportunities in these other capitals of theater? Certainly Toronto is the theater capital. Um, Chicago, where you've done some work, is is a theater capital. Is, is there desire now to to go beyond Canada? I think there is. I mean, I had a strong feeling when I was in London that I would be back there. I don't know what I don't know how to explain that. I just had a sense. I thought I'm going to come back. I'm going to be back here. I will do something else here. And I think just the whole spirit of this production, the way it was rehearsed, who's in it. Um, uh, the way we worked on the play. I mean, I now believe that the most important thing about any production is who you're working with. That's the top of the list. I mean, good play, good director, all that. It's it's who is in it, who, who you're going to be actually doing the work with. And if that takes you, if you let that be your rule, then that may take you anywhere. If you just, you know, it's to not search out the place, it's to search out the people you want to work with. And I'll turn that around and say I look forward to seeing the work of all of the people who get the opportunity to work with you and Stephen Wimette. Thank you for being with us for Downstage Center. Thank you so much, Howard. 
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.